Now we, we go to God's Word together now. And so let me invite you to take your Bibles, if you have one with you, and turn them to Hebrews chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you that you're welcome to use and welcome to keep if that would be of benefit to you. So Hebrews chapter 13, we've been walking through this book and we are, we're almost home. We're almost home. We've got today and tomorrow, or today and next Sunday. You guys can come tomorrow. I don't know who will be preaching, but I'll preach next Sunday, Lord willing. And we will finish this glorious book together. So Hebrews chapter 13. Today we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 17. Hebrews 13, looking at verses 7 to 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, last week as we started chapter 13, uh, if you were with us, I, I compared it to the lab portion of a chemistry class said how in chemistry classes you have a classroom portion where you learn the principles, the concepts, and it all seems really clear until you go to the lab portion and you actually try to do the things you've been learning about. I said in chapter 13, the last chapter is the lab portion. For 12 chapters, we've seen this glorious unpacking of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he's done. And now in chapter 13, he says, all right, in light of that, Here's what it looks like. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the question, the same question carried over from last week. How do we as citizens of Zion live here on earth? So we talked about the city to come. How do we as citizens of that city live here on earth? Last week, if you remember, we summed up the first section, verses 1 to 6, under this banner of love. If you could sum it up in a word, it was love. We talked about we should love our siblings in the church. Love the stranger, love the suffering, love our spouse, and don't love stuff. 
Okay, so love was the banner over week one. This week, our banner is in verse 14. We seek the city that is to come. All these things we're going to talk about are under that heading because what we see in this text is that we are to live lives that are focused on making it home to that city and helping one another get there as well. So what does that look like? How do we practically seek the city that is to come? We're going to look at five ways in our passage. So these are, these are your headers if you're taking notes. First, we trust the same Jesus. Trust the same Jesus. Second, we stick to a steady diet of grace. Stick to a steady diet of grace. Third, we join Jesus on the road of rejection. Join Jesus on the road of rejection. Fourth, we offer the right sacrifices. And fifth, we follow our leaders. Follow our leaders. Okay, so we're just going to jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover in this passage. So to see the first way that we seek the city that is to come, look at verse 7 again. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Okay, now he's going to talk about leaders some more at the tail end of our passage, right? Leaders kind of bookend this section. Down in verse 17. But the leaders he's talking about, these are two different groups of leaders. Here in verse 7, these are their former leaders who have died. That's why he calls them to remember, because they are no longer with them. And in verse 17, those are their current leaders. Okay, so two different groups. But I think it's helpful, before we separate them too quickly, let's put them together. So verse 7 and verse 17. And notice four things that we can learn about what leaders do. So when we're talking about church leaders, where the rest of the New Testament calls elders, what do they do? What do we see here in our text? Well, we see in verse 7, they speak the word of God to the church. That's what he says. Remember them, those who spoke to you the word of God. So they speak the word of God. Two, they live a life worth imitating. He calls them imitate their faith. So they speak the word of God. They live a life worth imitating. Now, if you drop to verse 17, we see they keep watch over souls. They are, they are shepherding. They are watching over the souls of the people in the church. And fourth, they clearly provide leadership, right? That's why they're called leaders, because they're providing leadership. So these are all things that we see elsewhere in the New Testament that elders or pastors are called to do as they lead the church. So if we were to sum up, what is a leader to do? Well, they're teachers who speak the word of God. They're examples worth imitating. They're shepherds who watch over souls. And they're leaders who set a direction. Okay, so just keep that in mind. And that's, I'm, I'm pointing that out because it's here in our text. And it's relevant for our member meeting after the service. When we're talking about what should we look for as we consider another elder candidate. Well, our text helps us there. Okay, but here the author says that we are to remember leaders that we've had in the past. Those that who've proclaimed God's word to us. In other words, one of the keys to seeking the city to come is not forgetting the guides God has given you along the way. And I would broaden this out. This is not just people you've known directly. I think you can say these are authors you've read. These are talks you've heard. So these are people in the past who have shown you 
who God is and what he's like and how good his promises are. It says we're to remember those leaders. And this remembering isn't simply having a vague recollection of them, of, oh yeah, I remember that guy when I was younger. I, I, I remember that he existed. Now, one writer says that this is a kind of remembering that changes you. It's, it's having an impression burned into you by the way they lived and what you saw in them. It's a kind of calling to mind that impacts the way you live your life. As I thought about this, one of the first examples that came to my mind was my uncle Mike. You're going to bear with me. I may, I may get choked up when I talk about it. Because when I was a new Christian, my uncle Mike was one of the few men I knew who I would look at his life and say, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. I knew lots of men who went to church, but I didn't know many men like my uncle Mike who lived differently, who you could tell knew Jesus who lived their lives in light of the fact that he had died for their sins and was raised again. He looked different. And so when I got baptized as a young Christian, I will never forget when he came up to me afterwards and hugged me and leaned in close and whispered in my ear, be a fool for Jesus like me. I will never forget that. It was simple. Be a fool for Jesus like me. Because he didn't just say it. Not long after that, my Uncle Mike got cancer. And I watched him be a fool for Jesus for the next, I don't know, year, two years, however long it was. Watched him live in a way that looked foolish to the world because his hope was in Jesus. As he trusted the Lord through a battle with cancer that ultimately ended with my uncle being welcomed home by the Jesus that he loved and lived like a fool for. So when I remember my uncle, I remember that. And that changes me. And that encourages me to press on. I want to live like he lived. I saw what the outcome of his faith was and I want the same one. I want to know Jesus and live like Jesus and die in Jesus like he did so that I can meet Jesus like he did. That's what the author is calling for here. That kind of remembering. As we remember our former leaders who spoke the word of God to us, he says there's something in particular we we should key in on. Notice, he says, we're to consider the outcome of their way of life. Not just their way of life. Not just how they lived, but what came of it. We're to consider what did their lives produce? What were the results of how they lived? And as we consider both the earthly fruit and the heavenly rewards that were the outcome of their lives, when we think about those and remember those, he says, Imitate their faith. As you consider those things, when you think, okay, here's what it led to. Yes, I want that. So imitate their faith. As we remember how they ran their race and how they finished their course, how they made it home. Remember, that's the goal. And we say, they did it. I watched them do it. As we remember that, we're meant to imitate the way they ran. We should trust Jesus the same way they did. Because we've seen the outcome of trusting Jesus in their lives. And if we want that same outcome, we should trust Jesus the same way. And do you know why we can trust Jesus the same way they did? Because he's the same Jesus they trusted. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now this is a powerful verse all on its own. And we usually just kind of pull it out as though it's, it's just inserted randomly. But it's, it's not. It's where it is for a reason. Because the author's point is we can trust Jesus the same way that our leaders did in days gone by. When we watched him take care of them and provide for them and his kindness and his mercy in their lives. We can trust Jesus the same way they did because he's the same Jesus right now. That's the point. Is He didn't change. So if you've seen what it looks like when Jesus takes care of his people and walks them all the way home. Guess what? He's still that way today. So you can trust him. Friends, this is such good news that Jesus is unchanging because it's not just one characteristic. Now, we, we could list a lot of things that Jesus is, but this is kind of how he is all those things. This means that when as we read our Bibles and we see how kind Jesus was, we say, wow, I can't believe that. We can know that he's just as kind today. He's just as powerful as when he calmed storms. He's just as compassionate as when he healed the lame. He's just as loving, just as gentle. The Jesus in the Bible is the same Jesus we trust today. He is all the things that you know him to be. He is that unchangingly. So the Jesus who helped your leaders in days gone by is the same Jesus who helps you today. He's not just good. He's unchangingly good. So that means we can never look at times in the past whether the recent past or the distant past and say yeah I know they trusted God and they did this and that but those were different times the author's point is circumstances change but Jesus never does so we can always trust him we trust the same Jesus that's our first way second way we seek the city to come is we stick to a steady diet of grace. Look at verse 9. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Okay, when he says here, don't be led away, that, that word there is a word that's often used for wind or waves of something that's blowing you one direction or another. Or the waves tossing you to and fro. That's, that's kind of the picture of being led away. It's being carried off by wind or waves. Or here, what threatens to blow us off course in our journey home here? Diverse and strange teachings. He's saying there's going to be teachings that you encounter along the way that instead of strengthening you for your journey to Zion, will instead lead you off course. And notice he says there's lots of them. He says they're diverse. It's not just one thing. He says there's a whole lineup of strange teachings. And they're strange in the sense that they're foreign to the gospel. He's like these, these don't belong here. They are other they're different they don't fit so what kind of teaching is he talking about here primarily well if we look at the context it seems as though he's talking about the same kind of teaching he's been talking about throughout the whole letter he's talking about teaching that would lead these christians back to an old covenant religion of rituals and formalities and rules Notice he mentions being devoted to foods from an altar. 
Most likely what he's talking about here is the peace offerings. When they offered peace offerings in the Old Testament, you would sacrifice your animals and then you would actually eat the food. So you were literally devoted to the food on the altar. That's part of your, part of your religious worship was to partake of the food on the altar. So our author here is saying, don't be swept away by this teaching that would take you back to this old covenant religion. Don't look to any teaching that would tell you to look to things you've done to be strengthened. So there they could say like, well, I made the peace offering. I brought the food. I sacrificed the animal. I did all this. Okay, I I think things are good with me and God. How do I know that? Because of what I did. I brought a sacrifice. Check. I ate the food. Check. And he says there's plenty of this teaching. There's lots of teaching today that tells us when you evaluate your relationship with God, of how do you think you're doing? How do you think things are between you and the Lord? We, we evaluate it on the basis of what I'm doing or what I'm not doing. I think things are going really well because I've been going to church pretty consistently. I've been, I've been praying a fair amount, I'd say. like I'd give myself an eight, seven maybe. And I've not been uh, watching that show that I know my coworker does. And I'm not using language that my neighbor does. So therefore, because of what I'm doing and what I'm not doing, I think things are pretty good between me and God. And if your heart is weak, if we start to question, like, I don't know, I feel like things are not good, things are not right between me and the Lord, there's teaching out there will say, okay, I know the answer. Start doing this and stop doing that. Right? How you fill in the this and that, there's, it's diverse. What you ought to do and what you ought not to do. But that's the whole point of the teaching out there, he says, is that it's all based on what you do, what you do, what you do. But he says that's not the diet that will strengthen your heart. When your heart is weak, what does it need? A steady diet of grace. And what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited kindness to us unmerited kindness to us and to strengthen our hearts we need to ponder both sides of that phrase so first we need to ponder and remember that it's God's unmerited kindness unmerited that means it's undeserved God gives it to us not because of what we've done Not because of who we are, but in spite of what we've done and in spite of who we are. We didn't earn it and we don't get it or get to keep it because we're doing the right things. It's free and undeserved. That's what grace is. And doesn't that alone just strengthen your hearts to know right now you don't deserve it? You never did. So you can't stop deserving it by what you do or don't do because you never deserved it. That should free us. But we also need to remember what it is that we don't deserve. It's God's unmerited kindness to us, to people like you and me. What he gives us that we don't deserve is lavish kindness. He richly pours out mercy. He deeply loves us. 
He adopts us and makes us his sons and daughters. He washes us clean from every stain. He redeems our yesterdays, gives us help for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He gives us family and friends. He gives us a church family and a Bible and his Holy Spirit. He gives us joy and peace. He gives us refuge and rest. And he gives us a home with him in his everlasting city. And all of it is grace. You don't deserve any of it. And he loves to give it. Feasting on that truth, friends, that we don't deserve any of it. But oh, how much he gives. When you feast on that grace, that's what strengthens weak hearts. When our hearts are weak and fearful and hurting and cold, what we need to strengthen them is grace. A hearty, steady diet of rich, meaty grace. That's what he tells us here. And where do we find a feast like that? Verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, remember those worshiping at the temple, they would eat the food sacrificed on the altar, right? That's where they're feeding from. But he says, we have an altar as Christians with better food. Well, well where is our altar? Like, where is this place we go to eat this food? Our altar is the cross. That's where our sacrifice was offered. People sometimes explain grace. You may have heard this. There's an acronym, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And it's decent. It's a decent summary of what grace is. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, the cross is where Jesus paid that expense. Where he paid the cost for all the good that we receive from God. His sacrifice paid for our sins and bought us every good thing that is ours in the new covenant. All the forgiveness, all the cleansing, all the changed heart, the access to God. The cross is where he did that. So when our hearts are weak, where do we go? We go to the cross and we're strengthened by the grace we find there in Jesus don't look to the, the junk food of false teaching. Teaching that tries to give you a different or strange hope. That's not gospel hope. That tells you if you only do blank and if you only stop doing blank, don't eat that junk food. It might give you a quick hit, just like the little rush of sugar from a candy bar, but it doesn't actually fill you or nourish you or get you any further down the road. In the same way, just having something to do might feel good, might make you feel like something's happening, but it's not grace. It won't sustain you. Instead, he says that we feed on the gospel of grace, and that's how you avoid being swept away by strange teachings that would tell us to look somewhere else besides the cross. So to make the city, to make it to the city that is to come, stick to a steady diet of grace. This is why we sang earlier, we will run the race, how? By grace and grace alone. And we will make it to the end by grace and grace alone. Okay, third. Third way we seek the city that is to come is we join Jesus on the road of rejection. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin 
are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Okay, so here, notice we're still talking Old Testament sacrifices, right? A lot of that language. But we've, we've changed sacrifices. These are not the peace offerings anymore from verses 9 and 10. These are talking about the sin offerings that were made on the Day of Atonement. What would happen is the priest would sacrifice a bull, first for his own sin, and then he would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people. And they would take the blood of these animals into the holy place where God's presence is, and they would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Then they would take the fat from the animals and burn that on the altar just as a sacrifice to God. They would not eat it. But then the rest of the body, they would just lug outside the camp to burn it. Like that, wasn't, that was not the important part. That was not the honorable part of the sacrifice. They, they got what they needed, and that was the excess. So outside the camp, why did they take it there? Because outside the camp was the place of uncleanness. Outside the camp was the place of rejection. The place where those who weren't welcome in the camp were sent. Like if you had any kind of uncleanness or if you had, if you had leprosy or ritual uncleanness, you got outside the camp. Get away from here. They were kept outside the camp because they were seen as dirty, blemished, unfit. They were cut off from the life of the community and rejected by the people. And when Jesus came to rescue us, that's exactly what he experienced. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was mocked, hated, and belittled. Jesus was called crazy. He said he's out of his mind. He was accused of being demon-possessed. He was treated as a dangerous rebel against the government. That he's causing unrest. He's trying to start a revolution. He's not, he's not a good citizen. He was chastised for not following the man-made religious rules and traditions of the day. He wasn't being a good Jew. Jesus was utterly rejected by the world. And he endured that reproach, it says, so that he could be our atoning sacrifice so that he could make us clean by his blood so that he could pay for our sins it's through his blood that says that he sanctified us and marked us out as holy and set apart for him so because he made this sacrifice to make us clean he went to the place of uncleanness and rejection so that we could be made clean and he sanctified us he put a mark and said you're mine you belong to me so therefore it says let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured we need to be willing to go where Jesus went to be treated like Jesus was treated we must be willing to leave behind our love of this world and our desperate desire for its approval the Bible is crystal clear. If we follow Jesus, we will be out of step with this world. Like, we, you can't have your cake and eat it too. 
Like you don't get popularity and acceptance and everybody thinks the world of you and you follow Jesus because they, there's a fundamental clash. Jesus told us in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus says that's, it's as simple and plain as that. He's like, if you, if you were like them, they would love you. But you are not like them. I have chosen you out of the world. And because Jesus sanctified us by his blood, we are no longer belong to this world, but we belong to him and his kingdom. And he says that's why the world hates Christians. Because the world hated Christ. Friends, the world is, like, we can't hope for, like, eventually there's reconciliation. We'll all sing kumbaya around a fire together. The reality is the world is fundamentally opposed to Jesus because the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. But we are not of the world if we belong to Jesus. And therefore, as Christians, our lives should look radically different than the world around us. Our lives should not be such that a neighbor says, I don't know, I know one of you guys in this house is a Christian and one in that house is not, but I don't know which, which is which because you guys both live exactly the same way. And when we look radically different, looking different will lead to reproach and rejection, to being mistreated, to being thought of as crazy, to being viewed as troublemakers who aren't good citizens, as being out of step with culture, as those who don't follow the nice religious traditions of the day. We know trouble will come. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These are promises in our Bibles. Just as surely as he says, all who come to me I will never cast out. We love those promises. Nobody has pillows with all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, saying, I love that promise. But it's just as true. And when Paul visited the churches he planted, do you know what his message was? Acts 14.22 says that he went around to these young churches, that he's, he got them set up, moved on, and he came back to make sure they were still going well. He says, he went around strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you, do you hear Hebrews and what Paul's doing here? He, he tell, his message is like, hey, there's a way to be strengthened. I'm, and I'm tell you what it was. He was preaching grace. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples through preaching grace. And he says, keep going in the faith, guys. Keep going. Keep running the race. Don't look back. Don't stop. Keep going. And... To get to the end, you got to go through many tribulations. To get to the kingdom of God, to get to the city of Zion, to get to the better country, the homeland, to get there, the path runs through many tribulations. So why would we go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the rejection that he endured? Why would we willingly choose rejection in this world? Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, we're not looking to make ourselves at home here. 
Like there's a difference in the way if, if you buy a home and you move in, that's different than when you're on vacation. Like if I buy a home and move in, I'm going to start maybe doing some projects. I'm going to invest my time, my money, my energy. I'm going to think for the long haul of how can I make this most comfortable, most suited for my purposes. How can I do this? If I'm on vacation, I'm not doing any remodeling projects. Right? In fact, that's probably illegal. But the point is like I'm just, I'm passing through. I'm not investing time or money and say, what if we knocked out that wall or what if I built it? No. It's temporary. It's not lasting. And his whole point here is we are not looking to make ourselves at home in this world. We are just pilgrims passing through because we seek a city that is to come. And when we get there and the king himself greets us and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. In that moment, Every rejection you felt along the way will melt away and feel tiny and insignificant compared to that acceptance. Every rejection you will ever feel is nothing in comparison to hearing your king say, well done, come on in, welcome home. So friends, let's not live for this world. Let's stop desperately trying to keep up with what other people say we should have. At this age or stage of your life, you ought to have blank. You ought to have accomplished blank. You should be planning for blank. We don't take our cues or our marching orders from the world. Let's stop seeking approval from the world and instead seek the city that is to come. Or to say it another way, let's realize that the way to the city to come is also the road of rejection. And let's join Jesus on the road of rejection and encourage each other all along the way, we're almost home. We're almost home. Grace has brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. Fourth way we seek the city is by offering the right sacrifices. Now these sacrifices are very different than the sacrifices we've been talking about. We no longer need to offer a sacrifice for sin because Christ has done that once for all. We saw back in chapters 9 and 10. There is no more sacrifices needed for sin. Yet in verses 15 and 16, we see that we're called to offer sacrifices. So what are these sacrifices? What are the right sacrifices? We see two kinds. We praise God and we care for each other. First, we praise God. Look at verse 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, we are called to, catch that word, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. In other words, we live lives of constant worship. Our lips are to acknowledge or confess is what that word is, his name. And and we know how to do this, right? We know how to praise things. We talk about how great that new movie that came out was, right? Nobody has to teach you how to praise the movie. Or you talk about the restaurant you just checked out. Oh, man, it was so good. They had these things that, like, had the stuff on top, and it was, oh. Or we gush about grandchildren, right? And and we ought to. We tell anyone who will listen about how amazing that place we went on vacation was, the place that you didn't remodel. You you tell people, like, oh, that, that... the view was incredible and, and they, the food there was great and oh, you guys should really go, 
right? Nobody has to teach us how to praise things. We are hardwired for praise. So what do we do when we praise God? We talk about him. We describe, oh, let me tell you what I love. We tell others why he's so amazing. We talk about how good he's been to us. We gush about how faithful he's been and how he's provided for us all along the way. We tell him and others how thankful we are. We rejoice in how patient and kind and merciful he is. And we confess that he is our only hope in life and in death. And without him, I'd be lost. And we do this, it says, continually. In other words, praise is not a special setting for Sunday mornings. It's our default setting. Psalm 34.1 says the same thing. Psalm 34.1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. But what I love about Psalm 34 is, do you know what helps us do that? Do you know what helps us praise God all the time? When we praise God all together. That's why Psalm 34 goes on and says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. In other words, we're more likely to praise God when we're with other people praising God. So let's spur each other on to offer this sacrifice of praise continually by offering it up together. I'm more likely to talk about the goodness of God in my life when I hear you talking about the goodness of God in your life. So let's, let's egg each other on in this sacrifice of praise. Just say like, how much can we talk about his goodness? Okay, so we don't offer sacrifices for sins. Instead, we offer a sacrifice of praise because Jesus has already made the sacrifice for sin. We don't bring God animals. We bring him hearts and lips that declare how great he is. Then the other sacrifice we offer is the sacrifice of caring for each other. Verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So the first one dealt with how we relate to God. The second sacrifice is how we relate to each other. The first is what we say with our lips. The second is what we do with our lives. And what we're called to do is do good and share what you have. In other words, care for each other in practical ways. We are to do things that benefit one another and share the resources that we have. One of the reasons that God has given us what we have is so that we can share it with others. Listen to Ephesians 4.28 when Paul explains why we have jobs. He says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You see this sharing on full display in the early church. Acts 4 says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now to be clear, I'm not telling you the application is you need to go home and sell your house, right? At least probably not. But I also think the Bible is saying we need to be ready to do that if there's a brother or sister in need. The point here is that what has been given to you isn't just for you. We are to do good and share what we have with one another. 
This includes sharing our homes, our food, our money, our possessions, our time, our wisdom, our lives. We have no lasting city here, and we're seeking the city that is to come, so along the way, we leverage all that we have to help one another get home. Notice it says this kind of sacrifice is pleasing to God. It pleases God. He delights in seeing his children care for one another in this way. When we do good to one another and share what we have, it says the heart of God is pleased and he smiles. And you know why? Because he sees his resemblance in us. We're treating each other the way that he treats us. The one who promised to never turn away from doing good to us and who shares all that he has. He says, do that. Be like your father. So no more sacrifices for sin. Instead, we offer sacrifices of praise, sacrifices of caring for one another. That brings us to our final way we seek the city that is to come. The last way is we are to follow our leaders. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I'm well aware that we live in a time that is immensely skeptical of leaders and resistant to any form of leadership. Any level, any form, we are just kind of, it's the air we breathe. We are skeptical and we're resistant. But as Christians, we are not to live like that. God has appointed leaders in his church and it says we are to obey them and submit to them. The word for obey here also includes the idea of trusting So, in other words, church members should not view their leaders with skepticism or suspicion, but instead trust them and submit to them. And the text gives us two reasons why we should do this. First, because they're keeping watch over your souls. The goal of a shepherd is to do what's best for the sheep. It's to get the sheep safely to green pasture and protect them along the way. And in the same way, what elders commit to by becoming an elder, is watching over the souls of God's flock. They want to make sure that your soul is healthy and trusting the Lord and seeking the city that is to come. And if your soul is in danger of drifting away, they want to warn you and help you come back to the path of faith. They want to feed you with the truth of God's word that will strengthen your hearts with grace. And they want to lead you in the paths God has laid out for us as his people. In short, an elder's goal is your good. They want to make sure that you make it to Zion. So follow your leaders because they are keeping watch over your soul to help you make it home. And notice that leaders are held accountable by God for how they watch over these souls. Being an elder is a weighty responsibility. What motivates an elder to care for the sheep isn't ultimately the approval of the sheep. It's the approval of the chief shepherd. He's who they answer to. God loves his sheep. And your leaders will have to give an account to him for how they cared for each one. So you can follow your leaders because you know that God himself is holding your leaders accountable to help get you safely home. Now as leaders watch over the souls of the congregation, it says they can do it one of two ways. Either with joy or with groaning. And the author says, 
Let your leader shepherd you with joy because it's no benefit to you to make their job miserable. He's saying, look, it's this simple. Leaders want your soul to flourish and make it home to the city that is to come. They want your good. So if you're making them groan in their efforts to do that, you're actually working against your own good. It's to your disadvantage to cause your leaders to groan. And I just want to say sincerely that I am grateful that I get to do this soul-watching work in a way that I have joy, that I am glad and not groaning. And I, I sincerely appreciate that from you as a church, and I know that I speak for the other elders as well. And so this is a call not to, not to repent and change your ways, but to do so all the more. So friends, follow your leaders because they're watching over you to help you make it home to the city that is to come. So here's how we close. How do we seek the city that is to come? We trust the same Jesus that those who came before us did and who got them safely home. For strength on our journey, we stick to a steady diet of grace. As we make our way to Zion, we join Jesus on the road of rejection. Along the way, we offer the right sacrifices of praising God and caring for one another. And we follow our leaders as they seek to help shepherd us home. Friends, we seek the city to come and we are almost home. Hitherto, his love has blessed us. He has brought us to this place and we know his hand will bring us safely home by his good grace. Would you pray with me? Father, we long for the city that is to come. Lord, as we journey there, would you help us to live this way? God, that we would be not merely hearers of your word, but doers. Help us to to take these things to heart, and I pray that they would change the way we live. God, encourage, encourage us today through grace. Would you strengthen our weak hearts? Would you help us remember how you've led your people in times gone by? And help us remember that you are the same Jesus today. Would you give us all that we need to press on? And would you help us have eyes to see how we can help our brothers and sisters press on as well? Until we all are home with you at last. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.